Morning Bridge. How are we all doing today? Yeah? I appreciate you all wearing those masks, keeping that social distance. I know it's not easy to sing, to look at each other's faces. I don't recognize most of the people that I normally know when they're wearing masks because you just see the eyes. I know it's not easy, so thank you. As Pastor Brandon said, my name is Dominic Wong, and I'm a pastor over at First Free. Uh, as of July 4th, I have been in Wichita for about one whole year. So needless to say, yeah, thank you, please. I appreciate the applause for that. This is actually my first time in this new building, and I'm, I'm really feeling it. I, I remember the old building, there were not windows, or if there were, they were tiny. Is that right? There were no windows, yeah. <laughs> this is a big Big improvement. Well, Pastor Brandon has asked me to kick off this short three-week series on 2 Peter. That's three chapters in three weeks, which, if that seems like a lot, it is. It's going to be a whirlwind, and we won't be able to cover everything in depth. But the hope is that by doing a chapter a week, we'll be able to zoom out get a bird's eye view and see what Peter is doing in this jam-packed letter. So if you got a Bible handy, please turn with me to 2 Peter. If you don't, we'll have the verses up on the screen. If you're wondering where 2 Peter is in your, or 2 Peter is in your Bibles, uh, it's, the, it's the one right after 1 Peter. Thanks, that's a joke. <laughs> First and 2 Peter have a lot of similarities, and I know you guys covered 1 Peter not too long ago. They both have obviously the same writer, the Apostle Peter. Both of them are concerned to call the church, the believers, to holiness in an unholy world. Both of them focus on leadership, leaders, and how leaders can make a huge difference, whether that's a good difference or, as we'll see in this book, a bad difference. And both of these books, First and Second Peter, they have a hope in Christ's return. That means everything. For now, we just sang a song, right? What did it go? How did it go? I got my mind made up and I won't turn back because I want to see my Jesus someday. That is the hope of both of these books, but in very different ways, as we're going to see. But while First and Second Peter, they have a lot of these things in common, they are both written to very different situations. The Apostle Peter is writing to very different situations. Because while First Peter, while in First Peter, Peter is writing to the church in response to threats from the outside, here in Second Peter, he's writing to the church in response to threats from within. In First Peter, believers, Christians, the church, they were being persecuted, marginalized, rejected. By, by the people that they once called family and friends, people that they once loved were now not talking to them, keeping them out of the marketplace, shunning them from family reunions. It was, it was a painful time. Christians were being sought out and, 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 and persecuted for their beliefs. It was a, it was a threat from all around us. But, but no, here, here in Second Peter, the threat is inside inside these walls. See, right now in, in 2 Peter, Peter's noticing that false teachers had been infiltrating the church. They'd been sneaking in. And what do false teachers do? They, 
They teach false teaching. They were spreading lies. They were saying, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, Christ isn't coming back. Maybe we will not see our Jesus someday. And if that seems like a small thing, it isn't. It, it plays out in the ways that you live your life. Because if, if maybe Christ isn't coming back, then maybe what that means is maybe he will not return to judge the living and the dead. Maybe there will not be justice in an unjust world. Maybe if Christ isn't returning, I can do whatever I want, live however I want, be whoever I want to be today if there are no consequences. Peter, the apostle Peter, he, he sees this threat growing. He saw people he loved, people he cared for in the church, people sitting in the pews. He saw them falling for this, believing these false teachings. And so Peter, he was gonna spend his last days fighting this. And now I say last days, because as we're gonna see in this chapter, this very chapter, this is not only Peter's second letter to the church, it is his final letter, Peter's final letter. See, the apostle Peter, he knows that he is about to die. And sure enough, soon Peter will be arrested, tried, convicted, condemned, and then and then this man, this, this hero of the faith, he will be killed, executed, martyred for the sake of the faith. And so this letter, 2 Peter, this powerful book, is Peter's last will and testament. His last will and testament. Like most wills, Peter is leaving something behind to the next generation. If Peter was the first generation of the church, he's preaching to the next generation, the second generation, young people. And in fact, the gifts that Peter is leaving to this next generation, the gifts that are being passed down in this book are actually our inheritance, your inheritance today. They have been handed down from generation to generation, these words. But unlike other wills, Unlike a will that you might make as you approach the end of your life, what Peter is leaving behind here in 2 Peter does not come from out of his estate, but from Christ's. Today, Peter is going to show us that in Christ, we have been granted many gifts. We're going to be looking at mainly three of these gifts that Peter is telling us about. And the question that we're going to have to answer today is, what do we do with these gifts? What do we do with these gifts? Let's start with the first couple of verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Please read along with me. Verse 1. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God 
and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that. Well, right off the bat, Peter makes a shocking point. A shocking point. Do you see it? Do you see it? There's there, right there in verse one. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This is, this is Peter. He's an apostle. He was handpicked by Christ, one of the 12. And, and when Christ, when he resurrected from the grave and rose again, he personally commissioned this man, Peter, to shepherd his flock. So this is an apostle, but what does Peter say? Continuing to those who have obtained a faith of what? Of equal standing with ours. Now hold on a second. What? Peter's saying, look, I am an apostle, but even though I am an apostle, even though I have seen Jesus in the flesh, even though I have seen the resurrected Lord, you, brothers and sisters, you have a faith of equal standing with him and all the apostles. Think about that. That is an incredible gift. That today, in the 21st century, in America, we have a faith of equal standing with the fathers of the church. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know your life, but I know me. And I know that I have not suffered nearly as much for Christ as Peter has. I, I have not served Christ even a fraction of how much he has. I have not trusted in Christ as much as he has. And yet, and yet, our faith, my faith, is of equal standing with the Apostle Peter's. And so what does that mean? It means that that word faith, it cannot refer to my own personal righteousness. It cannot refer to how good of a Christian I am or else there's no possible way that my faith is equal to Peter's. I know me. I, I, I read about Peter and, and there's no way that that's true. So no, the faith we're talking about here is saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason, the reason that your faith and my faith, our faith is of equal standing with the apostles is that it has nothing to do with how righteous you are. It has nothing to do with how righteous I am. Instead, instead, Peter says, we have obtained a faith of equal standing by what? Look along with me right there. We've obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. If it was by my righteousness, I wouldn't stand the chance, but it is by Christ's righteousness. It is a gift, not something that we earn, not something we deserve, because a gift is what? A gift is given, right? A gift is given. It is not something that you earn. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good Christ is. So much so that on the final judgment day, when we see our Jesus again, 
when you go before the almighty judge and stand trial for all of the ways that you have hurt other people, spat upon God's beautiful creation and rebelled against his will, when you go up before the judge and stand trial for that, if Christ lives in you, then his righteousness stands fully in your place. When the judge sees you, he will not see you as you. He will see Christ in all his goodness instead, and you will have his righteous verdict. And brothers and sisters, the punishment that you deserve, I got good news for you. Jesus Christ has already taken that upon himself. That is an incredible gift. And the first gift that I want to talk about, the first gift that we want to say is that Christ's righteousness has taken our place. The theological word for this is justification. Christ justifies us. And if you don't have this gift yet, email Pastor Brandon or myself. Give us a call. Ask an usher after service. Talk to someone in your life who does know Christ and ask them how this free and amazing, incredible gift can be yours. Brothers and sisters, it is an incredible gift indeed, is it not? And if this was the only thing we ever received from God, it'd be enough. It'd be more than we could have ever deserved or imagined. Imagine, but yet, this is not all there is. What do they say on TV? But wait, there's more. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Please read with me. Verses three and four. His, that's Christ's, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but Peter is telling a story here. And it's a simple story, but it is a grand one. It is an epic story. He's saying, once we, you, brothers and sisters, were trapped by the corruption of the world. Once we were imprisoned by the brokenness of sinful desire. Once we were no different from the evil that we see all around us. The evil that we see dominating this world twisting human beings to to harm each other, to hurt each other, to, to, to disregard the beauty of what God has made. But what does it say? What does it say? It says that we have escaped. By Christ's power, we have made our getaway. Jesus broke us out of jail, and folks, he didn't stop there. There's more. There's something beyond imagination. Brothers and sisters, I'm about to make a bold claim. And honestly, if scripture wasn't so clear on this second gift, I would be afraid 
to even suggest that it was possible because it is an audacious claim. What is this gift? It is that through saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, look what it says at the end of verse three. We have been called to his own glory and excellence. And because of that, because of that, we have been granted a gift. Now, what is that gift? Look at verse four. It's that through his precious and very great promises, we will become, get this, partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Partakers of the divine nature. First, I want to be clear what it does not mean. Partakers of the divine nature does not mean that we become a part of God ourselves. We do not become a, 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 a God ourselves. We do not ascend to Godhood. We don't become little gods. That's actually a false teaching that the Mormon church teaches. And it is completely wrong. This verse is not talking about us becoming gods. No, what it's referring to is this, the second gift, gift number two. It's saying that we will be remade in Christ's righteous image. We will partake in Christ's divine nature. And that is a big gift. To understand how big of a gift it is, you need to understand that it is part of a bigger story. See, we were originally made in God's image. Genesis tells us this. We are made in God's image. We are reflections of his majestic holiness. But then what happened? We rejected God. We, we said, no, God, we don't want anything to do with you. We've been given this task of reflecting your majestic holiness, but we don't want to do that. We want to go our own way. We want to live how we want to live. And so while we still bear his image, while each and every single one of you were born in God's image and still bear that image today, we do so imperfectly. We don't reflect God fully in the way that we are supposed to. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take a genius to see that. Man, I look at my life and I, I do not reflect God fully in the way that I am supposed to. Not in my thoughts, not in my words, not in my deeds. I am a sinful person. We can see it in our world, the way that we treat each other. There is something wrong with humanity, brothers and sisters. We, are, we have a sickness in our hearts. We are not reflecting God well when we can trample on his creation, when we can, we can choke the life out of something that God has made. Something is wrong. We are not reflecting him well. But where we failed, Christ succeeded. He is the perfect human 
the final Adam, the exact image of the Father. And one day, when Christ returns, he will fully unite us with himself. And we will be restored to what we were meant to be. If you're curious, the word for this amazing hope is glorification. Glorification. And it simply means this. That someday, when we see our Jesus again, we will share in his glory. We will share in his glory. Scripture talks over and over again about the promise of this great gift. Listen closely to these amazing passages. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Here's another verse from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That song we sang this morning, I want to see my Jesus someday. What happens when we see our Jesus someday? It is not just that we get reunited with him. It is not just that we get to see him. But when we see him, 1 John tells us, we will see him as he is and we shall be made like him. That is an amazing promise. This is the end of the story for you, brothers and sisters. This is what awaits us when Christ returns. Full righteousness and glory. Let that sink in. When Christ comes back, your struggles, the weaknesses that pull you away from God's path will be wiped clean forever. You will no longer be divided. You will no longer be broken. You will be whole. You will be as you were meant to be. Brothers and sisters, do you want this? I do so much. Hear me, this is our great hope. Our hope is eternal life, life eternal. And, and guys, that means a whole lot more than just life after death. Hear me, eternal life is not just an extension of our biological warranty. No, eternal life is true life. It is life and life to the fullest. It is a restoration of what you were made to be. When there will be no sin in you, when you will be fully righteous in thought, word, and deed. This is Christ's precious and very great promise that we will share in his own glory and excellence. This is what we long for. So if you were in Christ, you have these gifts. First, you have Christ's righteousness, which has taken your guilty place. And second, you have the promise that someday you will be glorified. You will be made fully righteous in Christ's image. So what does that mean for us now? 
What do we do with these gifts? Let's keep reading verse 5. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. This is the turning point in our passage. We have been talking about the gifts we have in Christ, and now Peter shows us how we ought to respond. I'll read that first part again. For this very reason, make every effort. In in just these few words, Peter is doing something very clever. With one phrase, he's addressing two types of people, two common pitfalls that many Christians make in responding to the good news. For this very reason, make every effort. So I want to talk about these pitfalls. Pitfall number one is this, self-righteousness. The first type of person, the self-righteous person, they hear, make every effort. They hear that phrase, make every effort. And they say, yes, I'm all in. So they work hard at the Christian life. They, they do good things. They have regular devotions. They pray. They read the Bible because after all, following Christ is all about living right. Right? I get good with God by being good. Right? Wrong. That's right. Thank you. Wrong. This is a dangerous thinking that confuses our work with Christ's. And Peter, he leaves no room for this. He says, for this very reason. That's how he begins this passage. For this very reason. What is he referring to? Everything that's come before this. All the first part of this chapter. All the gifts we have in Christ. It says, in other words, because Christ has done all this work, because Christ has died on the cross, because Christ has given you the gift of righteousness, because of Christ, make every Because Christ has done this for you. Now you do this. Now hear me right. That is a very important order. It must begin with Christ. It cannot begin with you or you're not going to get very far. Throughout this letter, Peter is clear. It is Christ and Christ alone who justifies us. It is his righteousness alone that saves. And anyone who forgets this, forgets our gift. That we were made alive by Christ's righteousness. I'll put it another way. I want you to imagine two men. Uh, Both of them, they're married. And both of them, they work very hard at their marriage. They both buy flowers. They both notice haircuts. They both spend time listening, not talking, listening. But there's one major difference. The first man is confident that his wife loves him. There is no doubt in his mind that their marriage is strong, that it can last, weather through anything. 
And so he works hard because he loves her and he desires to be worthy of her love. The second man, the second man doubts that his wife loves him. He has no confidence that their marriage is going to survive another crisis. So he works hard because maybe, just maybe, if he works hard, his wife will love him. Now those are very different pictures. One is sweet, the other is tragic. And it is the same with us in Christ. Listen to me, if today you are trying to earn Christ's love, that is tragic. That is a tragedy because with Christ, you don't have to wonder whether or not he loves you. He loves you so much that, what, that he died for you. This is your unfailing gift. So that is the first pitfall. The second pitfall is this, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. The second type of person is the one who hears that Jesus has paid it all. And they say, great. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was five years old. And I was baptized when I was seven. So I'm all set. I'll see you in heaven. Except in their life, they've lived only for themselves. They've gone against God in every way. They don't flee from sin. They embrace it. But that's okay, right? Because it's Christ's work, not mine. I can do what I want, live how I please. Because I have a heavenly get-out-of-jail-free card. Nothing can come between me and eternal life. I'm set, right? Wrong. The false thought here is that because we are justified by Christ's righteousness, we need not ourselves pursue righteousness. It is primarily this pitfall that Peter is writing against in the rest of this chapter and in the letter of 2 Peter as a whole. To this person, to the unrighteous person, Peter says, don't think that Christ's effort means that there's nothing for you to do. Far from it. Instead, make every effort. Make every effort. Look back with me at verse five. For this very reason, precisely because of Christ's work, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Here we see that the correct response to the incredible gift we have in Christ is this. Pursue Christ-like righteousness. We respond to God's gifts by pursuing Christ-like righteousness. If you're curious, the word for this response is sanctification. Sanctification, which is the call to all Christians to grow in holiness and righteousness. 
It's something that should be happening in everyone who has faith. Because faith in Christ, it doesn't just sit still. Faith by nature produces virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and its end goal. Faith's end goal is love. Love of God, love of neighbor. We are called to be righteous, to be sanctified, to be like Christ. And now, none of this is new. We can all agree that these are good things. Righteousness and Christ-likeness, these are good things. But what does the pursuit of Christ-like righteousness have to do with the gifts we have in Christ? Why is this the correct response? Why is the pursuit of Christ-like righteousness the way that we respond to the gifts? Peter tells us, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What's Peter saying here? And it's just common sense. In other words, if you have saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it should be what? Producing fruit. It should be effective. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of Christ is effective. It's fruitful. In the same vein, look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, if you've been cleansed from sin, now hear me out, don't sin. If you've been cleansed from sin, don't sin. If you've been freed from prison, you should probably leave the prison. If you don't, if you slide back into what you've been freed from, Peter says you're so nearsighted that you're blind. Now take that from someone who is actually so nearsighted that he is blind. (laughs) How dumb would it be if I had my glasses with me and I chose not to use them? If I got up here and I tried to preach without them, I would be saying a lot lot crazier things. (laughs) If I got in a car and I tried to drive without them, I would be writing my own death sentence. After all, what do you do with a gift? You use it. You don't put it up on the shelf to admire it every now and then. You don't hide it away in storage. You don't re-gift it to someone. You use it. Let's say your car broke down and you've been biking to work in this 95 degree summer heat. And let's say a wealthy stranger drives past you, sees what you're doing and says, you know what? I'm gonna buy you a car. 
He lets you pick it out, the make, model, and the exact color you want. He has it shipped to your house the very same day. How ridiculous would it be if the next day you got up, brushed your teeth, got ready for work, walked out the door, took a second to admire your new car, and then got on your bike and biked to work? That would make no sense. I would say something was wrong with you. If you have a gift, you use it. And this is what Peter is getting at in verses 10 through 11. Read with me, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What does that mean? Confirm your calling and election. What is it saying that if we practice these qualities, we will never fall? It almost seems to be suggesting that, you know, Christ has done these amazing things, but the ball's in your court now. And now that Christ has saved us, it's up to us to stay saved. But can that be right? Can that possibly be right? Do you, do you feel the tension here? Is it Christ's work now or is it, is it ours? And we've talked about two gifts so far. Christ's righteousness takes our place. That's gift number one. And gift number two, we will be remade into Christ's righteous image. But if you were paying attention, I said at the beginning that we were going to talk about three gifts. And the third gift is one that we've actually already read. We didn't unpack it the first time around, but let's go back there now. Look with me at verse three. His, Christ's, divine power has granted to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. It's right there. Your ability to do good works, your capacity to even be righteous in the first place, that also comes from Christ. In other words, the good things that you do are not from you. They are themselves a gift because the third gift is this. Christ gives us all we need to be righteous now. Christ alone has saved us. Christ alone will glorify us. And Christ alone now sanctifies us by giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not just what you need to get started, not just a little bit here and there, but every virtue in you, every fruit that is growing, every second of our lives is ours only by the divine power of Christ alone. Even your good works are the work of Christ. Even your good works are the work of Christ. They are your works, but they are also Christ's. And that is the great mystery, is a great mystery that our pursuit of holiness is both Christ's work and ours. At the same time that Christ calls us to be holy, he is the one who every moment enables that same holiness. 
It's a great mystery, but it shouldn't come as a surprise. Because over and over and over again in the scriptures, God chooses to use broken human vessels to accomplish his miraculous deeds. And what greater miracle than that Christ would make us broken sinners more and more like him in all his holiness. God uses us to do his deeds. And so at the same time as you are doing good things, never, ever, ever think, this is me. This is me being awesome. No, this is God working through me. I am working in tandem with God. So then what does it mean to confirm our calling and election? Simply this. Works confirm our calling because our works are the confirmation, the evidence, the receipt of the work of Christ in us. If Christ lives in you, then how could you not be producing the fruit of righteousness? If you have been truly called, your life will be changed in the light of that calling. If you have a gift, how could you not use it? Because what is our final gift? The end of Christ's work, the goal of our perseverance is this in verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We who believe in Christ have this incredible gift, the promise of a glorious future, of an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior when he returns once and for all to set all things right. And like all his promises, this promise is meant to be eagerly anticipated, waited for, yearned for. It's like a child excitedly waiting for their father to come home from a business trip. Now, if the child is just sitting at home watching TV, I would say they're probably not genuinely eagerly anticipating dad's return. But if they really are, if they really, 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 really want dad to come back, then what are they doing? They're, they're asking over and over again, mom, when's dad coming back? When's dad coming back? They're planning all the things they're gonna do when he's home. They're dreaming about it, thinking about it constantly. They are living into the promise long before it's fulfilled. And that is why we are called to pursue righteousness in this life. Because if you believe that we are promised full righteousness and glory like Christ, why would you possibly do anything other than run towards it now and wholeheartedly pursue righteousness now in this life? If this is the goal, walk towards it. Well, hopefully now you can see why this letter is so important to Peter, why he's spending his last days writing it. He says in verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He's going to die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Jesus has specially made known to Peter that he is about to die. And so it should mean something to you that with this knowledge, with the knowledge that, you know, these are my last days, Peter's dying wish is to remind us by way of reminder so that we can remember, you hear that word three times? These things, to remember these qualities, to remember, be righteous, church. Pursue righteousness. Be like Christ, church. And the reason that Peter is so passionate in this appeal is because he is certain that it is true, that our hope is real, that Christ will truly return, and that we will share in his glory. He knows this because, as he says in verse 16, read with me, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now think back to your Bible stories. What is this talking about? What is the event being referred to here? It is the transfiguration. Christ, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says this to the disciples. He says, look, disciples, Truly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? You will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, right after this, Jesus takes a few of them, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, and there on the mountaintop, we are told in the Gospels that Christ's face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and Moses and Elijah were there and the voice of God said these same words that Peter quotes here. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter could have brought up any other event he witnessed Christ heal the sick, cast out demons. He saw the risen Christ himself. Things that none of us can claim. But instead of any of these things, Peter right here, he chooses to describe what he and a few other disciples saw that day on the mountain because this was not just another miracle. This was the very same vision of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It was a preview, a sneak peek of Christ in all the majesty and glory that he will manifest when he returns at the second coming. The same glory that Peter tells us we will share in when Christ returns. In other words, the vision Peter had of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration 
That is the glory that we will partake in. And if that's not enough, if you need more assurance that Christ will return gloriously, Peter goes on to say in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter reminds us that the Old Testament prophets, they constantly speak of the coming what? The coming day. The day of the Lord, which has yet to dawn, but will be as bright as the morning star rising in our hearts. As Brandon is going to show us next week, false prophets are going to speak from their own desires for their own selfish gain. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, they're going to deny the very second coming of Christ. They're going to deny the day of the Lord. They're going to deny that Christ will come back in glory. And because of that, they're going to deny that we will share in that glory. But this right here, this call to righteousness, Peter says that this is true prophecy, coming not from men, but from the Holy Spirit, carrying men along to write down these sure words. And so we can be sure that it is true, that Christ is coming back, that everyone who knows about his righteousness now has the sure promise that they will be made fully righteous when he returns. And so today, brothers and sisters, today, Bridge, we live between two world-changing events, Christ's first coming and his second coming. At Christ's first coming, our verdict before the judge was wiped clean, and we were declared righteous, our gift of justification. At Christ's second coming, more than just the verdict, but the actual brokenness and sin that still lingers on in us today will itself be wiped clean. We will be made righteous. We will be made like Christ. This is our gift of glorification. And so here we are today, between these two world-changing events, at the same time, both sinners and saints. Already, but not yet. Right now, who we are does not match who we will be. But we have the amazing promise of full righteousness and glory. And so, brothers and sisters, I call you in light of this glorious future. We are called to be holy, to use the gifts God has given us, to be sanctified, to pursue Christ-likeness, to run towards the goal of righteousness. And by doing these things, to confirm our election as we march towards the goal, faithful to the end. Please pray with me.